Welcome back to the ADMS podcast. I'm Natalie Campbell and in this episode we're revisiting a session from the 2023 International Conference on Automated Decision Making and Chinese Societies, which was held at RMIT University on the 1st to the 3rd of February. In this session, expert panelists Sean Wu from CDAO, Casey Chen from CDAO, Jenk Scow from Filecoin, and James Kang, a crypto enthusiast, are joined by discussants Ellie Rennie from RMIT University and Caitlin Beagle from Filecoin to discuss Web3 and Chinese digital diaspora, industry and community perspectives. I'm very pleased to be able to uh, invite four of our industry and community members to come on board to talk about Web3 and the Chinese digital diaspora. So I'll just say a very quick word to uh, introduce the theme, and then I'll uh, pass on to our guest speakers, uh, the four panelists, and we have also very delighted to be able to invite two, uh, three, actually, <laughs> uh, discussions while online. Uh, I will, uh, Deb will introduce them in a minute. All right. So we all know the internet is poised to transition into the next era, the era of Web3, which triggers a new round of inter- information revolution and the social cultural transformation. Since 1994, Chinese internet has gone through Web 1 and Web 2. Now, in those times, they were uh, lagging behind the US-led West, but now they're gaining global leader supremacy in mobile communications, social networking, uh, e-commerce, and more. Web 3 technologies give China new opportunities in its race for technological supremacy, global influence, and strategic capabilities. They involve a wide array of state and private actors to participate in the development and application of Web3 technologies. But Web3 ecosystem is said to be compatible with the real estate industry, as James uh, vividly described to me when I talked to him during the Christmas. And it was like, you know, Web3 ecosystem is like a real estate industry. It it encompasses infrastructure and hardware or tools, builders such as IT geeks and the programmers, developers, investors, marketers and influencers, buyers, speculators, etc. I really like that uh, metaphor. It uh, It has powered the private sector and encouraged new digital entrepreneurship among a new generation of technology geniuses and enthusiasts. How do you view Web3? What do they do? What do people do uh, to figure out how to be active participants rather than passive spectators in the Web3 universe? What have they learned or relearned about their roles and identities in Web3 and in the world? So as I said today, I'm very pleased to be able to invite these four representatives of the Chinese community members in Melbourne and Sydney, respectively, Sean, Casey, Jenks, and James. Thank you for coming to MIT for this uh, special public seminar for the International Conference on Automated Decision-Making and the Chinese Societies. And there's a lot to talk about Web3 or Chinese Web3 or Web3 in China. Uh, but this webinar focuses on their diaspora experience, being Chinese, migrant, and being in the world. So first of all, would you please briefly introduce yourself? We'll start with Jenks. Okay. Yeah, cool. My name is Jenks. I'm uh, overseas Chinese. I was born in uh, Shanxi and uh, raised in Nanjing. So if I see anyone 
from northern China, I tell them I'm from Shanxi. Uh, if it's from south, I'm meeting someone from the south, I tell them the other one. Um, so um, I have been uh, in Web3 industry for uh, almost one year. Um, and I uh, have a very interesting job. I think it's very interesting. It's called developer advocacy. So developer advocacy is a, a practice to engage and nurture a technical community in a, for a company project or for a platform. So it's using um, te technical explanation of things, uh, creating content and uh, speaking engagements and, 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 and consulting uh, different kind of uh, builders uh, to be able to sell the product without kind of officially marketing it or selling it to the crowd. Um, so on the, what what a day day to day uh, looks like is I, I create contents, I make uh, videos, I go to conferences to talk, and I uh, uh, mentor developers on hackathons and uh, mentor entrepreneurs for accelerator uh, boot camps, for example. So those are my day to day job. How I got involved in uh, Web three was actually in 19, uh, 20, uh, 2019. Um, uh, it was under influence of a friend and a colleague of mine. He was uh, doing uh, Ethereum mining. Uh, so back then there was a shortage on GPUs. It was getting very expensive. So I looked into that and we calculated that uh, in five months, if we just buy those expensive GPUs and start mining process, we'll be able to get the profit back. We get the cost back in about five months and start to make profit. So I did that and I did, uh, it did work. Uh, but after that, at some point, I think I had about eight GPUs running. Uh, I thought it was as a, was a hobby, but also a way to keep my room warm through the winter. So it was a very expensive heater for me. Uh, I didn't care about the cost. So energy consumption was also justified. So I'm not wasting energy. At least I'm, I'm keeping my legs warm uh, without turning the heaters on. So, so that's how I got involved. And then I worked for a company called Linktree. They build microsites for influencers. There's about 30 million users on it now. And the CEO was really pro-Web3 at the time. And um, uh, I initiated a project to integrate Linktree with uh, Ethereum uh, through MetaMask integration. And, um, and that project ended up building uh, a verified NFT uh, background and verified NFT profile feature uh, at the end, so that kind of brought the bridge, the link tree, this Web two uh, product into Web three world, and they they have a foot in the door in that. So that that made me um, got very interested in this industry, and that's when Filecoin started to reach out to me and say, "Hey, do you want to do DevRel in uh, in Filecoin project?" I looked into it. What attracted me was the mission uh, of Filecoin, and also the really amazing technology behind. Um, that supports the project. So um, yeah, so I've been working there uh, since May last year. Great, Sean. Hi, I'm Sean. And uh, since 2018, I work as contributor in CommonStack. It's DAO based in Europe and uh, focus on public funds building, uh, public good funding. Um, at that time, I'm really interested in how open source software community to raise funds to get money. And uh, yeah, in CommonStack, that's my first time no digital nomad because the core team of CommonStack, they moved from US to Europe, to Switzerland. So I have the idea for the uh, digital nomad at that time. Since 2020, I start to translate and introduce DAO to Chinese community. For example, how to work in DAO and what's the vibe in different DAO, how to contribute. 
At the same time, I work as contributor in Mirror. Mirror is the most popular publishing platform in Web3. In Web3, we don't use media, we don't use Substack, we all use Mirror. Um, I did creation in Mirror. At that time, I, yeah, I connect with lots of community uh, from Chinese digital nomad, from US, from Europe, from Southeastern Asia. Early last, uh, early last year, I work as contributor in CDAO. CDAO is the uh, biggest uh, impact DAO in Chinese community. Our mission is to connect uh, 1 million digital nomad. Uh, in this stage, CDAO is doing two major things. The first thing is Web3 education for digital nomad. We have our own online learning platform we call this school. We have more than 200 courses to study. And the second thing, second thing is to develop DAO infrastructure because we want to reduce the governance cost. We want to increase the efficiency and all these issues need to support by DAO tool. Uh, that's my experience in DAO and uh, Web3. Before I involved in Web3, I'm the founder of one AI startup company for artificial intelligence and uh, I'm software engineer and um, investor. Uh, that's all, thanks. Okay, thanks. Casey. So my name is Casey. Yeah, it's okay. It, it works now. Okay, I'll just. <laughs> so, my name is Casey. I'm a venture analyst uh, and product manager in Web3. Um, and I got into this industry uh, two and a half years ago um, in the midst of DeFi summer, which is like mid 2020. And the reason I got into it was because I was trapped in China for going back home, like first time in 10 years to celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, and then basically the whole country locked down. Um, and then I kind of like switched my career path from an ordinary product manager into Web3 because I was really fascinated by, um, we call that crypto at the time, um, not the Web3 narrative yet. Um, so crypto to me at the time is more like an on-chain uh, casino. So got like millions of new projects coming out that reflecting how human behave on-chain with um, public data and in and reflects in real time. So I was like really, I was I was really fascinated by this and decided to go in this industry to uh, observe, observe more. Um, so that was the first, uh, my first job was a product lead in an NFT trading platform in the end of 2020. And then we actually uh, opened an art, uh, an art show, like the first ever in real life art show in Beijing. Um, and in also in the world. Um, and then after that, I joined um, the company that later started CDAO. And then I started uh, to run as a DAO operator and then design like the product infrastructure for how to run a DAO. Uh, and after, so, uh, 
So Sean actually like introduced CEDAW a little bit. Um, we are one of the largest uh, Chinese speaker DAO uh, operating around the globe. Um, and that's how Sean and I met uh, through CEDAW. And then right now we are also involved in one of the project called the school, which is the educational uh, components of CEDAW to onboard more um, people into Web3, like mainly focus on, like currently still mainly focus on uh, Chinese speaker. Um, and besides the school, uh, I'm also working as a VC analyst uh, based in Sydney at this moment. So that would be me. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Steve James. Uh, I studied animation and interactive media here at MIT 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, before I entered uh, Web3, I was uh, uh, doing design and marketing for a real estate company. Uh, uh, here in Melbourne, and uh, um, during, during the pandemic in 2020, uh, um, I was work working from home and I got some uh, new news about the crypto, and uh, I uh, yeah I was moved moved by uh, um, my friend who was mining the Ethereum. Like Jenks, but not him. Um, yeah, I I I I set up my own mining machine at home as a hobby, and then um, more get uh, in into the uh, crypto and the Web three space. And uh, um, uh, in in the May of two thousand and twenty one, I I was lucky to onboard. Uh, uh, bought a yacht club, which is a famous uh, ape monkey uh, uh, um, picture at the time. Yeah, uh, 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 and then I was uh, in uh, more and more into uh, the uh, NFT uh, um, space uh, from from then, and uh, then I uh, trade trade NFT like us. Uh, and buy and uh, selling pictures online, and uh, uh, until the, this year, I uh, I enter and participate different DAOs, and uh, um, then uh, I I realize a uh, uh, selling picture is, is not the future, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, and then I I I I realize I have to learn learn something, and. Uh, um, then I uh, participate, uh, like see, see it out to do the research and uh, yeah, and uh, so on. Yeah, that's it. That's me. Well, thanks for the brief introduction of yourselves. Uh, Dave, can we uh, put Dave on the screen and uh, Caitlin as well? Hey, Dave. Hello. Hi, Aicheng. Hi, everyone. So Dave, would you uh, take, take over and introduce our discussions? Sure. Um, so I think we'll introduce Caitlin first, uh, since she's online, and then move to Ellie. Um, I know Caitlin works with Filecon, but I'll let uh, Caitlin give her a short introduction as well. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, can you hear me OK? My internet's a little unstable. 
Great. Um, yeah, it's it's an honor to be here. Um, I'm colleagues with Jenks. We both work for the Filecoin Foundation. Um, and very, very briefly, my background is actually in policy. So um, in the early uh, 2000 teens, I was working for the U.S. and U.K. governments um, in policy innovation for democracies. Um, and this was actually my first introduction to blockchain as a technology. Um, so I mined some Bitcoin very early on, which I ended up selling at a very bad time, um, but was really, really taken with these technologies as a solution for the public sector. Um, ended up going to grad school in Munich, um, really focused specifically on digital infrastructure and technology governance. Um, and I now lead protocol governance for Filecoin um, and also jointly with IPFS, if anyone's familiar with the interplanetary file system. Um, what this means is because these are open source protocols, um, we effectively have to do all of our project and product management out in the open. So all of the thousands and thousands of token holders, um, miners or storage providers, um, community members of all different types uh, who participate in this network, they are equal owners of the network as well. And it's my job to design consensus systems to help us make decisions about what we're going to do, um, both from a technological point of view, but also from an ecosystem and sort of social perspective as well. Um, so happy to be discussing and to hopefully add a little bit to the conversation, um, particularly since Filecoin has a really large and robust Chinese community. And um, the way that we work together is a pretty large facet of sort of my day-to-day -day for the last two years. Thanks, Caitlin. Yeah, Falcon is a really, I think, impressive, uh, one of the impressive projects in Web3 and, and keen to, to dive further in into the, the China element as well. Um, great. Next, we'll uh, have Ellie, who is uh, definitely the, the queen of, of Web3 over at ADMS. And um, Ellie, I'll, I'll yield the floor to you. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I'm a professor here at RMIT University working in ADMS and uh, the Digital Ethnography Research Center and the Blockchain Innovation Hub. And uh, my fellowship project is looking at the social outcomes of blockchain technology using mostly ethnographic methods, but um, collaborating with some others who do more on the systems design or data science side of things. And um, yeah, my, my case studies are, are very broad ranging. Um, I have delved into Filecoin a little bit, although haven't gone so far as to as to write that up in a in a in a way other than kind of boring report type situation. But um, I'm yeah really looking forward to this panel because I think that the some of the cultural dimensions of um, what's going on inside these very global. Uh, distributed infrastructures is, is is a puzzle to many at the moment, um, and we kind of assume that these automated systems are kind of applying the same way everywhere, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I'm extremely curious to hear about the experiences of those on this panel. Thanks, thanks, Ali. Um, and our third discussant is uh, Nicholas Lubert. Hello, um, this is my first time on a Web3 or cryptocurrency panel, so I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm quite new to uh, this field, actually, so uh, my current research project has been looking at small-scale gold mining, uh, so Chinese migration to Ghana 
uh, for small-scale gold mining. And then I had the brilliant idea, I think it's a brilliant idea, to expand that into cryptocurrency mining too, as you know, the, the whole language around Bitcoin especially is as digital gold. Uh, so that threw me into this world uh, uh, almost two years ago now, I would say. And it's been, uh, it's been an interesting ride, I've got to say, trying to wrap my head around all of this. Uh, so I'm really interested in looking uh, at uh, migration, Chinese migration for uh, Bitcoin mining in particular, looking at North America, Sweden. I'm an associate professor at Lund University in Sweden. Um, and just the kind of ways in which uh, material moves, people move, ideas move, uh, all associated around this idea of, of extracting something that's virtual uh, from the material. So um, I'm just really interested to hear about the projects that you're all involved in. And I hope I can come up with some interesting questions to prompt you uh, in other directions as well as we have this conversation. Well, thanks for the self-introduction. Really rich uh, backgrounds of in which each one of you. All right, we'll kick off this uh, discussion and um, response now. Um, okay, I'll have a first set of questions about uh, the Web3 ecosystem with Chinese characteristics. As Ali uh, pointed out, you know, you, you talk about Web3, are they all the same? No, not necessarily, but how? All right, now I'm going to just read out the first one and, uh, you know, we'll just, in, because of time limit, I'm not going to get all of you to answer all the questions. So for the first one, I would, uh, the question was through to Sean and Casey. So now, China's Web3 ecosystem favors central control while leveraging decentralized technologies. Like the previous years, Web3 industries benefit from government support and incentives, while at the same time being contained by the Great Firewall 3.0. How do you understand such a categorization of China's Web3 industries? In other words, is China's Web3 ecosystem different from the rest of the world? And how? Xiong. Okay. Yes, please. I, I can tell a small story. Last August, last August, uh, more than 20 Web3 team, project team, they come together in Dali, a beautiful small city in south of China. And uh, they come to say goodbye to old friends because all these teams will go overseas. And one of my friends asked my question because she has three years plan to make a documentary to record video to do interview for all the uh, uh, Web3 history, or oh, sorry, Web3 uh, industry. And she asked me a question, how, how can I go ahead with my plan? Because you all, all go overseas. My suggestion is, you know, follow this team. You go overseas too, to record how they're struggling overseas and how they achieve overseas. And uh, yeah, that's the future of the Chinese Web3. Uh, yeah, as you, as you, yeah, the question is, in China, I think the, we have two Web3 and separate the, the Web3 in China and Web3 in all of the world. I think it's separate. Because in China, they, they ask for the Web3 based on private blockchain. But in a word, we all think the Web3 should be based on the public blockchain. I think it's separate. It's, that's why a uh, lot of the Web3 project, the team, 
uh, have to leave China, I think last year. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. Do you have anything to add, Casey? Um, well, I feel like the definition of Web3 in China, it's fuzzy, um, as in a lot of like, uh, the definition basically got redefined um, in, let's say like, I wouldn't say in China, but like in um, the the media, like the the way like the way like Chinese portrayed uh, certain terms got a bit like ambiguous in China after a while because it has to like comply with certain policy. And in this case, um, if Web three has a definition of being being open, being permissionless. Uh, that wouldn't be the definition in China. Uh, they kind of like re not even like diverted a bit into a new internet, but without telling you what the new internet supposed to be, uh, so that they can um, have some sort of definition of metaverse interject into it. So um, if you're talking about like China, um, China's Web3 ecosystem, that doesn't really have to be public blockchain as Sean just mentioned. It just have to be some new data solution that, um, well, I don't know, different from the, the second generation. It doesn't have to be token. It doesn't have to be, um, public um, or transferable or ownership. It doesn't have to be this thing. It just have to be different. So that's just my point of view. Thanks. Do you have anything to add or um, not? So, yeah. Uh, so I, I want to touch on Casey's point on, on uh, definition of Web3 is a little bit ambiguous. Yes, it is weird when people talk about Web3 and stuff in, in China right now, because you can't talk about token, you can't talk about investment, uh, speculation is banned, and then uh, you, can't, you can't talk about mining. And, and that was biggest one of, one of the things that impacted Filecoin project a lot, because uh, over, overnight, the mining process was uh, deemed illegal in China. So people, when people talk about Web3 you know, um, technology there, people only talk about blockchain technology, and people only talk about distributed computing um, and, and anything else but the token itself. So definitely is a, is a, is a weird spot right now. Yeah. You touched upon the tokenless metaverse. Tokenless metaverse. So one of the things, I was looking at your question and then before and we got a list of it, I was looking at it. Um, actually, metaverse in my mind doesn't have to be tokenized, right? It doesn't have to be, uh, doesn't have to run um, on, on blockchain or doesn't have to run on uh, crypto. Uh, but because um, because the the attribute is quite similar to a lot of uh, blockchain projects, mm -hmm. so it gets mentioned together. I think it's completely fine to do metaverse without token, just less less cool probably, um, and less kind of uh, like the ownership is less distributed to 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 the to the members of the community and less equally divided. Um, but you can still have amazing uh, metaverse project. And China is advancing there, but because all the other things are missing, like the exciting parts are missing, so there is a big, um, big uh, exodus of talent outside um, to go out of China right now. Yeah, as Sean also mentioned, it's about overseas. 
going overseas. Yes, going over, yeah. all these teams will go to the Southeast Asia mm. just because they want to add the tokenomic in their project, in their product, and it's banned in China. And they, they, they have no idea how to do without the tokenomic for some project. So this kind of project, they, the only choice for them is, is move overseas. Well, James, you know, you are in a very privileged position that because you're already overseas, you didn't experience any of, of those restrictions. So from your experience, you know, how do Chinese developers and players, you are one of the players, get around the restrictions to participate in the international market? As far as I know, there are still a lot of uh, trader investors uh, in, in China mainland. Uh, doing uh like Bitcoin and also other coin token trading, um, but they got their special way, like not a public way to to do that. As no as a, a VPN or the over the 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 wall called Fanchang. Scale <laughs> yeah. the wall. Yeah, scale the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They are, they are still got uh. Uh, like lots of people doing that, as I know, yeah. But uh, as the we yeah we we communicate we share experience on WeChat, but uh, some of like most of time just we we uh communicate by our own like code name, not exactly like token because token itself cannot be like like discussed uh publicly uh. In China, but yeah, we we will use like like code name. But yeah, I, 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 as far as I know, there 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 are still there still got lots lots of way to uh to do uh like to 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 trade like uh uh in the uh, international public uh market. Yeah. So you have developed your own language, Heihua. Ah uh, yes, yes. In crypto industry. Yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> We might use some like, like symbol or other stuff or yeah, like other than the Chinese itself. I want a glossary. <laughs> I heard there's a, there's a lot of a nickname for President Xi inside of like all the digital platforms in yeah, China. Something like that. Yeah, because yeah, you can't mention the the, the name directly. Yeah, you'll get banned very just quickly. Say Baltimore. Yeah, oh, and, the and then there's a the list end. of really weird references to President Xi. And they get blocked. So a lot of people like they just they're just talking about random things like fruits and you know doing things, and then they get banned. Like <laughs> messages just disappear out of thing. <laughs> they were not even referen referencing to those things, but it gets censored somehow. Yeah, there is so so just as like Chinese government sort of turned censorship into a state of art thing, and the kind of the people in China uh, subconsciously has a mechanism to deal with it, and it's a kind of a struggle between the two right now. I think that, that, that sort of applies to crypto and <laughs> development of uh, Web3 too. Uh, Dave, you, he wants to ask a question. You can use your privilege of being co-chair to do so. Uh, thanks, yeah, I think, I think the question of censorship and, and Web3 in, in the mainland is of course super interesting. And we've also seen cases where uh, people have used the blockchain to actually, uh, you know, share information uh, and actually put them on smart contracts uh, during protests. I think even earlier this year, the, the white paper movement, 
uh, in March uh, coming out of Beijing and Shanghai and other places. Um, I think uh, moving the discussion then towards uh, governance, which I think is one of the most important questions. I think you know that conversation is happening now outside Web3 as well, how to govern crypto, how to govern Web3, but there's also a really probably more important uh, sort of conversation happening internally of how do we create uh, norms, rules, structures, uh, tools uh, to govern uh, within. And especially, I think there's a lot of, you know, the word decentralized uh, is used with Web3 uh, very easily, very interchangeably. Um, and it's, I mean, it's funny because even in the, the Chinese political context, you know, we have discussions about decentralized governance between the sort of center and, and you know, provincial um, governments and, and how that works. And then within Web3, you have various states of decentralization and what that really means. And I think it's really useful to learn a little bit from, you know, each of your perspectives uh, actually working within Web3, how decentralization actually plays out. Um, and it would be uh, great if we could hear from uh, maybe Sean or Jenks about how, uh, your ex in your experience, decentralization really looks like uh, within DAOs or within, you know, other, um, other spaces that you're a part of. You want to go first, Sean? Okay, okay. So, so Falcoin, uh, I'll go uh, over a little bit about what Falcoin is about. So Falcoin is one of the largest um, decentralized storage uh, network there. So people on the Falcoin network, they can, uh, they can uh, bring their data center online to provide storage services and people can assume, uh, consume these uh, data centers. So it's, a, it's playing the role of, um, of a uh, centralized cloud services. Um, so that's one of the most important function of the internet, meaning yeah, storing files. We can't, everything we do on the internet needs storage. And this is one of the fundamental thing that, that, uh, that, that it requires. So to upgrade the internet to Web3 to a, to a better future, um, you can't do it without infrastructure uh, being moved, being decentralized as well. Um, so there is uh, so there is a 3,900 miner. So we call them storage provider because China banned mining. We changed the name from mining to storage provider on the protocol level. Um, and then um, the, there are 3,900 3, miners plus miners around the world distributed um, uh, everywhere to provide uh, provide storage. So there's infrastructure decentralization, but also there is uh, the governance, like ownership decentralization of these. Traditionally, cloud platforms are owned by single corporation, so single businesses. Um, even if it is public listed, it's uh, still controlled. The stocks or the decision making still are controlled by a very small group of people. Uh, with blockchain project, you can distribute those um, decision making into uh, into community members based on either mining power or uh, the number of participation, what kind of contribution they put into the project. Uh, so, so the uh, so there's two. The way I see it, there's two parts to decentralization. One is physically, how does this machine work? How how distributed geologically it is, uh, and what parts these machines play. And then there's the people side or human side of it. So who uh, who contributes to what decision making in the in the system? So there is. Decentralization is a gradual uh, process. I think a lot of projects understand that. So even though a lot of projects um, claims that they're very distributed, but at first they're going to be a little bit centralized, such as big mining um, uh, leagues or alliance controlling uh, mining powers. And they might, they might together, they might uh, behave certain way, uh, but that's okay. But 
uh, that it might be a process. Uh, everyone, I think in every, all, all the projects who aims to go fully distributed, they will understand that that's a process. We, we need to go through this. And then it, as long as it's, we're going to the direction of fully decentralization, uh, then that's okay. So that's my view on uh, how, how decentralization is developing in the blockchain space. And thanks, Jenks. And I know since we have Caitlin on as well, and Caitlin works closely on, on governance, of course, within Filecoin and especially on some of the forks or upgrades. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear from Caitlin on, on what decentralization looks like and, and her uh, thoughts and views. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think Jenks gave a perfect introduction. I think he's completely correct um, from the point of view that we share. Um, in terms of ensuring the decentralized ownership and decision-making of the Filecoin protocol, better incorporating Chinese community members in particular is probably one of the biggest hurdles that we have um, when it comes to actual processes of governance. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons why this is. Um, cultural reasons, um, language is a big barrier, um, but I think it's important to recognize that one of the reasons why this is such a challenge is that the cultural assumptions go both ways between you know, core teams, which are predominantly in North America and Europe, um, as well as uh, predominantly storage providers in China. So there are a couple of characteristics that really stand out to me in working with Chinese community members on governance topics in particular. Um, they tend to be significantly more professional, um, at least in terms of their organization or the way that they portray themselves as an entity in the network. Um, oftentimes we will be talking with individuals, but they will be very clear in representing their capacity, or sorry, a company in their capacity, which is different from storage providers we see in North America and Europe. Um, they tend to approach governance as being more of a business relationship rather than being um, this collaborative community effort. Um, and they also tend to be more deeply involved in different facets of the ecosystem, even if their exposure and sort of ability to participate in governance appears to be lessened. Um, so it is more common for us to have European storage providers or American storage providers, for example, who are very, very involved as storage providers in storage provider working groups, mentoring other storage providers, and maybe they also pay attention to governance. Whereas with Chinese storage providers and community members more broadly, what we see is that they tend to be much more involved in other companies working in other facets of the ecosystem. They tend to participate in and take advantage of other types of funding programs and mechanisms. Um, but for us, it is also significantly more difficult to engage them on, again, those kind of decentralization aspects, um, community building, communications, governance, et cetera. Um, I think I'll leave it there. I think we could dive into other things a little bit more deeply too, but I don't want to take up too much speaking time. And Jenks, feel free to correct me because you work with uh, the Chinese community in a different focus than I do as a developer advocate. Thanks, thanks, Caitlin. Yeah, I think the the Chinese aspect is fascinating, and I think we can get more into it also during uh, the the sort of audience Q and A, or even uh, later on when we talk about the Chinese diaspora and how they engage. Um, Sean, maybe did you want to add anything towards uh, your experience of how decentralization is playing out uh, in in the companies or the communities you're part of, especially CDAO, for instance, which is the one of the largest DAOs connecting the Chinese diaspora. Yeah. 
uh, if we talk about fully decentralized, I think in the whole Web3 industry, less than 5% DAO is fully decentralized. Uh, if you talk about the Chinese community, maybe none. All the DAO is, is, is still in the progressive decentralized, from the centralized to decentralized. Uh, in, I think there's different type. Uh, some DAO is still no big difference with company. Actually, it's company, but they, they with the name DAO. And um, I think roughly 80, 80%. The DAO is from the centralized, maybe from the company. They still have the two different uh, legal entity. One is company. For example, Merida, the core team, the company is in New York, in US. They have the 20 staff and they have the product development and this company working well. At the same time, they have the community, the Merida, and these two work together. Maybe they have the member, the shared member, the shared structure, but the company and the DAO move together. They have their own plan in three years. Company will disappear, all return to DAO. I think that's the uh, reality in the, in the Web3 industry. All the DAO have their three, five years plan, how to move from the centralized to decentralized. And back to when we talk about CDAO, I think we have, uh, my experience is, See, you know, see now have uh, more than 10,000 members, but almost all the members come to DAO. They have no interest in for governance. They come here to share ideas, to build the project together, or they want to do something interesting and uh, have fun. Just, uh, I think, no more than 100 members, the active members, they're looking for, yeah, we want to do the governance because it's something I'm really interested in and it's future and something they, they, they improve the governance. But it's not, I think, uh, yeah, less than 5% in the state, less than 5% interested for governance. And the second thing I notice is the, the cost for governance is very higher. Compared to the company, oh, I think the, the cost is too high. You know, I mentioned that the mission of the CDAO is to connect 1 million digital nomads. Okay, just the 10,000 members, the cost we can't afford. How about 1 million? So that's why we slow down. We have to do something. How to reduce the cost, government cost? How to increase the efficiency? to make us ready for the big network for global digital nomad. So I think the whole industry is working hard in this stage. That's my, you know, my experience. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. If I can just uh, ask you to maybe elaborate a little bit on what you mean by cost of governance uh, and why in more members it makes it more expensive. For example, proposal in the whole community, how many people can write a proposal? Awesome proposal, no. 
I think just a couple of people can write a proposal. That's why we have to, you have to pay money. You have to have key, key to write a proposal for whole community. And second thing, you have to do education. The people, how to understand decentralized, how to understand to do governance, why we do need to do the governance. Education cost is higher. And another thing is, you will find when we, we talk about the voting, talk about uh, governance, but when you know, we, we, we release the proposal, you'll find in the whole community, only 20, 30 members will come to, to vote. How to make the community active and make it understand the importance how to do the vote. I think all, all this is the cost. You need a team. So in this stage, the cost is a little bit higher than my imagination before. Thanks, Sean. That's really fascinating. And, and I think these are some, some, these are some of the costs that I think people looking from the outside, you, it's really hard to see. And, and it was really nice to get that insider take. Um, and, and perhaps there's also costs that come in from, you know, you mentioned how many DAOs are still operating as companies. And I wonder how much of a challenge is that the, the, the larger legal systems perhaps today don't have a strong recognition for DAOs uh, and whether that also makes it more challenging uh, and um, perhaps also the lack of tools. Uh, I don't know, for instance, MetaGov is working on uh, some of the teams there working on actually creating tools. And uh, perhaps, Ellie, if maybe you wanted to add a little bit on how uh, you know these tools or the lack of tools can sometimes impact uh, how decentralized Web3 can really be. Yeah, thanks. Um, really interesting comments. Thank you. I I mean, I think it's important to recognize that DAOs are automated decision-making tools for governance, and they are aiming for the kinds of um, efficiency that you're talking about. Um, they They do descend often into... Uh, because I think how early how early in this we are, we you know we kind of end up with these laborious um, deliberative democracy processes in DAOs that um, people just get fatigued and leave, or um, you know those who are better at writing proposals kind of have more power in the system or whatever it might be. Kind of things that political scholars have known for some time. We just kind of see this playing out. Uh, in DAOs, and the, the, I think that the kind of the the reason why people are persisting with them and working on them is that the the promise of DAOs. I mean, I, I describe the smart contracts of DAOs, the the machine actors within DAOs as the bureaucrat that is supposed to be doing the work for the political principles, which is the decision makers and the members and all the rest of it. And we haven't necessarily got it right in terms of the extent to which those smart contracts or processes that are automated can be responsive to what that community uh, needs or expects or wants um, or to, to enable that community to steer whatever it is that that DAO is governing. In the case of Filecoin, that's um, a massive infrastructure for data centers and um, 
now the Filecoin virtual machine and, and the rest of it upon which smart contracts can, can be built for all kinds of new capabilities as well. Um, so, well, I mean, I, just to, I suppose to try and tie it back to some of the themes of, of this conference then, you know, I, I, I was talking earlier to a couple of people about, um, you know, Heyman G's uh, concept of institutional layering from day one of this conference and, and this idea that we have, you know, that autocrats like ADMs because they mean that we don't have to um, to maintain or put any extra additional power into judiciaries or institutions. And actually, I think, you know, Web3 is that promise as well. It's just that it's not doing it for autocrats. It's it's more for these communities or groups or, you know, in the case of Filecoin, uh, infrastructure providers, it, ways to kind of, for them to be able to have uh, the capabilities of institutions um, or, or, or to not have to rely on institutions, to, to just be able to kind of um, uh, do things that that are needed. I mean, Hamin was talking far more about the, um, the uh, I suppose, questions around uh, punishment or, um, you know, things that we see kind of coming through the social credit system, whereas... Uh, in this case, it's just that we're, we're making things kind of work in the background and alleviating all our reliance on external systems of either the state or whatever it might be. Um, and that's what Web3 is doing. So Web3, I mean, just taking it back to the earlier, at the start of this conversation, I don't think it's incompatible with China itself. And in fact, you know, the, the way that China has kind of progressed with CBDCs, central bank digital currency, faster than anyone else, the, um, the BSN, the kind of blockchain services network that China did very early. Um, and yes, they talk about blockchain, not Web3 and not DAOs and not all the things that we think of in terms of permissionless decentralized systems. But it's it, it, it's just, you know, it, it, it's still not that far removed, I think, from China at all. It's just that question of who and where that power is. And I don't think DAOs are necessarily going to be this kind of perfect democracy thing that people currently talk about them as. It's actually more corporate governance that they're trying to perfect. It's about constraining, you know, bad actors within a system, insiders and the rest of it, as opposed to, you know, trying to create um, some kind of political um, uh, power it's it, so so I think that like we we often overstate what DAOs are and and uh, in fact the if we start thinking of them as automated decision making machines alongside all these other ones that's that, that yeah there's, there's probably less of a a chasm between what's going on in China and what's going on in Web three sorry a bit of a rant but that's my just synthesis of some of the conversation that's been going on here. Thanks, Ali. I think we could have a separate workshop on that on that particular angle itself. Uh, Kaylin, I know you maybe had a point and a question to make. Yeah, um, if you had a separate workshop on that, I'd go to that one too. Um, I, I think to tie Ali's comments too back to what I think it was Shang who said in the beginning that there almost seems to be two different Web threes. There is the Web three in China, and then there is the Web three happening within the Chinese diaspora outside of China. Um, 
But I wonder within China, there also, it seems like there are different participants of Web3 as well. Those participating in Chinese native Web3 projects, regardless of how they're defined, right? Many are probably self-defined that way. And also Chinese companies and individuals that are participating in Web3 projects that may have originated or be predominantly based in other parts of the world. Um, and I wonder for the panel, whether your experience with protocols or DAOs or even investment opportunities in China, do you see, I guess on the governance front, any diffusion between those two separate groups? Are there any kind of cultural exchanges or learnings happening between perhaps you know Chinese uh, you know, folks participating in the Ethereum ecosystem in a variety of different ways, or even smaller external non-Chinese projects and folks who are trying to originate these Chinese Web3 projects? I assume they are participating under the Web3 banner in different sort of social media channels, et cetera. But do you actually see there being this cross-pollination or no? I hope that makes sense. Who would like to answer this question? Well, um, or actually work in China for my whole journey uh, working in Web3. But um, I would say the diffusion is like very slim uh, for ch Chinese version of Web3 projects and project that's just based in China, but marketing uh, to the rest of the world. Um, the the one of the reasons is um, the tech infrastructure is so different. So you can't write uh, a set of code for um, projects on public chain, and then you transfer it into a uh, Chinese version of Web3. Uh, that's very, very challenging. That's basically uh, scraping like the whole project and basically like redo one. Um, and another one is the mindset. So like when I got into the industry, it was like mid 2020. And then um, the predominance group of Chinese working in Web3 at the time is more for um, let's have a revolutionary set of projects that uh, help us break the current norm of value system or whatever. Uh, it was that um, sort of like crypto propaganda that get us into um, the the, the trend of project at the time. Uh, but for Chinese Web3 project, they don't they don't follow that. They're more like um that's just because um there are articles saying that or there are reports saying that this is the next next set uh, next infrastructure. Uh, this is the infrastructure for the next generation of web. So let's take over that uh, that that new land basically first, so that we have this like dominating uh, player effect when later like Chinese really adopting this industry in large scale. So that's two very different mindsets, and that led to like two very different directions of projects um, later as it develop further? Well, 
Can, uh, Dave, can I just uh, throw in one question for um, James and then for Nicholas to make a comment? Uh, you know, talking about the Chinese, Caitlin uh, talked about the, uh, the different, uh, my, uh, the, the Chinese being f factional and the difficulty of engaging uh, Chinese in governance. But then previously, people also talk about the uh, Chinese using VPN to scale the wall to join the Western or the international public Info, uh, networks and also go overseas physically or move their machines overseas for crypto mining, etc. And you, James, you mentioned you know you deal with people in China and overseas in Chinese, of course, on WeChat on Chinese platform quite often. So, do you feel that any friction or any the, how do you view this kind of interaction between people inside the wall and people outside the wall? Um, I think the definition of Web3, as far as I, as I, um, my understanding is about the ownership, the, cause we are, we are, we are talk, talking about the NFT or other like token or USDC or whatever. It's about the ownership. Uh, like, uh, if, like, like say I, I have an, uh, uh, NFT. I have a, a, a picture. It is like a storage in, the, like uh, in in IPFS or, or whatever, uh, no one can take that. That that's the ownership as far as I know. But uh, uh, um, 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 and the people in China, they like 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 especially the uh, the speculators, uh, they don't care about the, uh, the ownership. They just wanna like make money without the uh, without like convincing the like. The ownership, but uh, uh, my understanding is the ownership itself is is more important than the rest of things. So that's why I uh 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 my participating uh 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 on like BAYC because they uh um the narrative of the BAYC is like if I own the NFT itself, I own the IP. I can do whatever, like deliberative, or I I can put the the monkey picture on my picture, so I own that. Uh, like like say, if it is in the uh like like Web two world, say if I like have I put the Disney Mickey Mouse on my T-shirt, I sell, I will be sued by Disney because I like uh, like like uh I I am not allowed to. To do that without like uh copyright yeah 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 copyright that's uh yeah that's what what I uh 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 my understanding of the um uh, the people um uh, uh understanding of the Web three in uh, uh in China and uh the rest of the world yeah I th I think that that point about ownership I mean yes Web three is the Internet of Value. The thing is you can only have that value, that ownership that you're describing if you have confidence, at, you know, the confidence machine, as Primavera de Filippi and her colleagues talk about it. Um, you can only have that when you have a knowledge of a system that is going to work where no one can take that away from you, <laughs> whether that's the state or... Uh, you know, in in the case of Meta, Meta's Metaverse, that they could, or or a typical, you know, game, 
that they can just take your asset away from you. So, I mean, there, there is that fundamental need for the system to be sufficiently decentralised for us to have confidence that we can have ownership and that we can have that ability to transfer that to whomever we wish to transfer it. So I think that's where that fundamental disconnect is between, say, the, the China uh, approach to blockchain, <laughs> not as in a centralised private blockchain system, is who is actually going to have confidence in that. But at the same time, you see the adoption on something like Binance Smart Chain which is actually, you know, kind of controlled and it's quite centralised, kind of shows that most people don't really care um, necessarily about, about whether that asset is theirs. And I think, like, the work Filecoin is doing is super interesting in regards to ownership because, you know, the NFT storage, which is part of, which is in the Filecoin nft.storage which is part of the filecoin suite where you can you you actually know that your nft is going to be stored in this decentralized system and not the url won't just disappear and all the rest of it you know so that you know that it, it's actually the file will be there and you can have confidence in that yeah right nft.storage on the cap um yeah so so like the and and so for me it's almost like we're we um the that there's there's still a, a, a all of this makes sense right that that's how this system works and it only works if we have that confidence and yet large parts of the world don't care <laughs> and the traders don't care so I suppose my question is I mean it sounds like in I mean in in China how much to what extent do people care because I think say the Binance smart chain is quite popular among Chinese um, People, right? Correct. So, or I know, ah, okay, news item today Justin's son is moving to Hong Kong. So, quite infamous figure in the, in the blockchain world, Tron blockchain, um, who has, you know, kind of actually, uh, you know, done some quite startling moves by buying whole other systems because he had enough tokens to be able to do that. Like he's, he's kind of an icon of centralization inside blockchain world, correct? Um, so, I mean, yeah, so my, um, my, my, my question is, like, is, is there a separation between that, that concept of decentralization and having confidence in ownership um, or, or is it more just speculation? While you guys take one second to think about it, talking about ownership, I'd like to throw a question to Nicholas as well. Mm. You know, it looks like the Chinese participation or involvement in Web3 products uh, is mainly about ownership, <laughs> whether it's material ownership, machines, or symbolic ownership NFTs, right? So, yeah, while you guys can answer this question, I also want to uh, throw the question to Nicholas based on his initial research about the Chinese uh, involvement, overseas Chinese involvement mostly, right? In the crypto mining, the ownership of that part. Well, I mean, I think this is a really interesting, I mean, this is one of the things that drew me to this in the first place. Um, and I mean, when we're talking about Web3, I think, it, you know, you just start throwing terms around. It's such a diverse space, right? I mean, we're actually talking about completely 
different things here. I mean, mm. this is just like a tiny little sliver of what's going on out there. I mean, you've got all different types of uh, organizations, different types of setups, uh, experimentation, but then you also have completely different aspects of it, right? So you have the production of crypto mining machines, for instance, right? Which is primarily owned by Chinese entities, right? I mean, the vast majority of crypto miners are produced by Chinese companies. Um, I mean, you've got Binance, right? And which is the largest uh, uh, trading platform at the moment, right? And you just, there's there's China everywhere in, in Web3, right? Even though I think the, the main discourses of it are about crackdowns in China or this or that. Uh, so, I, I mean, I just think it's it's really fascinating to think about the, the different types of ownership. If we're talking about material, we're talking about virtual, we're talking about ownership of ideas and kind of uh, conceptual ownership within the, the whole space. And, you know, the, the these leading figures who are there and are seen as kind of thought leaders within this, the space of uh, Web3. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess... You've got your question for them as well, and I I would just kind of tack on to that. Um, I think you know something that strikes me is the the kind of optimism that is inherent to the whole uh, Web three and crypto space. It's almost like a like you've got to be optimistic, right? It, it, you have to bring some sort of optimistic energy into uh, this to further the development going forward. But then you also have this experience with the Chinese side of things where there are all these crackdowns and instability. And um, so how do you navigate uh, the great uncertainties? And I mean, it's not even the, just the Chinese side. I mean, crypto and Web3 is in turmoil all over the world, right? So how do you navigate between these these worlds and continue to push forward your products and your projects uh, within these kind of uh, turbulent times across China and the rest of the world. I think we're, we're all going to learn how to be optimistic in this bear market. It looks like it's going to be a while. Um, so I'll, I'll go back to Ali's point on, um, uh, on decentralization and do people care about this? Yeah. I mean, people didn't care about cloud platforms before, if you tell them like the, the data is hosted by the company and on, on cloud, uh, 20 years ago, people never cared about it. But now everybody's talking about cloud because it's um, it's a more efficient way of doing things. It, it unlocks a lot of possibilities. And now we're talking about decentralized uh, infrastructure for the internet. So Falcon is essentially breaking down that kind of centralization and then making um, making a, a smaller business can own a piece of the internet basically. So that's that's an that's like incredible concept. Um, will people care? Uh, that's the question. Will people pay for the, the attribute of decentralization? If it is the exactly the same product, like NFT storage and Dropbox is quite similar, right? But will people put it on uh, NFT storage? I should say Web3 storage is the paid product. NFT storage is more of a public good for the in, in NFT industry. Will people pay for that? That's, that's a big challenge right now. Uh, I wouldn't sort of sugarcoat it, it's, it's hard to sell people decentralization. Even if you reduce the price for decentralized technology, which Filecoin does, uh, our storage solution is a lot cheaper. In many cases, we subsidize it and 
it's like almost negatively priced. So we're trying to encourage data onboarding. A lot of people still don't want to come over. Um, but I think what people need to understand or what will trigger the migration to decentralized uh, technology is that they need uh, well and truly the decentralization aspect of it. So for Filecoin, um, it's it's the possibility of replicating your data in thousands of nodes rather than just one or two uh, on cloud platforms. It's the attribute of uh, being able to sustain data for longer than single corporation. A, a company might fall over 100 years, but economy wouldn't fall for, uh, can last for over 100 years. So if you have, uh, if you run a successful economy of data centers that is doing business in this in this kind of system uh, ecosystem that that kind of have people coming in leaving, um, you might have a data store for for longer and so permanent storage might be possible might be a possibility in the future. So unless we can convince people um, that decentralization uh, is different and then people need that difference, uh, they won't, it's hard to justify uh, the, the kind of value for the decentralization of the technology. Um, so for on Caitlin's point, is there a separation between the Chinese blockchain um, technology community and then the, uh, the the kind of the Web3 or Western, um, or I should say the rest of the world, um, uh, Web3 community? I think there is. I've never talked, spoken to anyone working on like EEC and not CMY project, EUN project. Uh, I've, the only connection I had was a company that did the trial for the, for the, for the Chinese government uh, of the blockchain system. And that was it. And they were working on like other Web3 projects ever since. So there's a, it's getting bigger and bigger. Uh, last time I was in Singapore attending a conference called uh, Token 2049. We also did a conference there, a Phil Singapore conference. That was a good way to get in touch with the miners that's, that's in the process of migrating their machines or their operation outside of China. Uh, I met about five or six, seven, um, even uh, either mining or uh, Web3 projects that are in the process of migrating. Uh, we're moving our offices and all of our staff to Singapore or Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong wasn't like allowed at the time still, like people were unsure. So primarily it was moving to Singapore and North America or um, like uh, Thailand or uh, Korea. Um, there is a big kind of, yeah, the separation is getting bigger, is what I wanted to say. Yeah, and I talked with my client you know, last year about the ownership. I think a lot of people don't care, but three months ago, the biggest uh, digital collection platform in China shut down, closed. I think it's, it's not an NFT, it's just a digital collect, collection, and uh, people lost all the digital assets. It's the, in the centralized platform. And then, Again, we talk about this issue. You really understand what's going on, why we need to put NFT in a blockchain. And we, we, we have the fully ownership of this digital asset in a blockchain. And it is the most important for that. I think people will learn a lesson from the, from the, I think, reality. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Um, in the interest of time, um, I want to do a quick round uh, uh, sort of question with each of the four panelists before moving to the audience Q&A. And I'm going to situate the conversation back uh, or sort of segue it nicely to, to the Chinese diaspora and, you know, within Web3. You know, I think when we look at Web2, for instance, there's a lot of literature looking at how sort of the role that the United States played in the growth of, you know, uh, Chinese tech sector. Uh, both in terms of flow of talent, of ideas, uh, you know, you had several of the, you know, entrepreneurs, whether it's 
Mahatam from Tencent or others who studied in the US and then moved back to China. I was wondering if each of the speakers could just take a minute each to just share your view, both as members of as members of the Chinese diaspora living in Australia, the kind of connections between the Australian ecosystem and sort of the Chinese Web3 uh, or the mainland Chinese Web3 ecosystem and what kind of flows of, of capital, of ideas um, and culture sort of flow in. And if you could just spend like a minute each and then we'll move to the audience uh, Q&A. Um, and I'll uh, and maybe well, who wants to kick off? I'll maybe I'll I'll put the mic on uh, on uh, Casey first. Well, I actually just moved to Australia uh, four months ago, uh, and what I've noticed is that um, a lot of the Web three people I met online, uh, who is also who also have a Chinese heritage. Um, are oh well even though we never mentioned that they are based in australia and then after i announced i'm moving to australia a lot of them reach out saying that i'm based in australia and um that actually got me questioned that why so many web3 people uh, with chinese heritage are based in australia um and of course like we can go back to like they a lot of their parents or or they, they themselves like uh, invest in Australia, even like in Web two era or like even before that because uh, this because Australia because the location of Australia is like close enough to uh, Asia but at the same time um, very Westernized so that uh, they can live a Western uh, style lifestyle, um, but at the at the same time. Um, as we mentioned, like as Chinese, like cracking down anything related to token, a lot of us um, who have projects that originated in China want to like move away from China and find um, a home for the projects. And uh, before Hong Kong announced their new policy, Singapore was uh, the the first choice, and then. American, but as America has um, a pretty strong regulation on uh, Web3 project as well. Um, their second choice is actually moving to Australia at this time. So we can see like another flow of like Chinese money and Chinese um, talents from Web3 uh, into injecting into uh, Australia without really announcing it because like at this time it's a lot of anonymous, um, I say like value flows going on. Uh, and at the same time, um, I would say investment into like Chinese projects is very uncertain. Um, they are interested in um, Chinese founder, but uh, investor would um, suggest the founders move to somewhere else to before they launch their assets. Either is um, no matter is a token or NFT. So they would suggest that to um, avoid the uncertainty of um, losing their investments uh, to Chinese founders. James, do you have any experience to share about the kind of um, 
two ecosystems. One is within China and the other in Australia, and the, the flow of talent, capital, assets between these two worlds. Mm. I, like, can I uh, like, respond uh, later? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, we we have uh, a bit time for a Q and A from the floor. Oh, great. <laughs> All right, we go to uh, to there. Can we get the microphone, please? Uh, Warwick, yes, please. Great, fantastic panel, guys. Um, like you, I I've spent the best part of the last five or six years working across borders in whatever we call it, um, and perhaps trying to give something a name also um, doesn't do its service. So the idea of Web3 um, can mean many different things to different people and in different places. And in fact, it's the differences that we're trying to understand as much as the similarities. I've actually got four comments to make very briefly. The first one goes to the question of DAOs as automated um, decision mechanisms. And I'd suggest that that is possibly one aspect of it but the A is actually autonomous as opposed to automated. And it doesn't necessarily mean um, uh, leaving it to the machine in every instance. We can, of course, use smart contracts that way, but not all DAOs are imagined as ways of devolving human beings from responsibility. So that's probably the first observation I'll make, is that um, uh, autonomy should not be conflated with um, uh, automated. The second thing, and this goes to the difference between the Chinese and, and the external diaspora and, and, and the designs, I guess, or the parameters of blockchains is the Western blockchain ethos came out of a very particular solution to a very particular set of problems, which was this problem of emulating cash in a digital sense without a central trusted authority. And to do that, it placed two very deliberate constraints. One was that the network had to be permissionless. And the second one was that it had to be effectively anonymous. But distributed information systems don't need those two presuppositions. So that's my second observation. And that drives the big difference. The third one is this idea of the consensus mechanism and tokens. And we all know that um, blockchains with tokens are not legal in China, though interestingly enough, ownership of tokens is perfectly fine. And my last comment is, uh, and I love this energy around DAOs, right? Because this is human beings trying to figure out ways of creating and running self-organizing communities. And there is a little bit of an what is old is new in all of this. And I'd suggest that you guys who are thinking and doing stuff in DAOs go back into the history of associations, guilds, mutuals, and cooperatives to find the legal and organizational protocols that have been worked on through centuries that, in fact, I think will help you guys in, in turning those visions into technical tools. So more of a comment than anything else, but I just love the energy and the, um, uh, the optimism. I'm not uh, uh, as uh, knowledgeable about this topic like uh, Warwick, but I have to say thank uh, the panel for uh, a great sharing. I just want to ask a clarification question. Uh, about uh, 电子人民币, 
right? The Yi uh, Chinese Yuan. Uh, so if we say there are two parts of uh, Web3, one is outside China, the other one is within China, but trying to evade the government. What about this uh, e-currency issued you know, by the uh, People's Bank of China, trying to uh, allegedly to, trying to compete with uh, Bitcoin and stable coins of the world? And it seems to me that the adoption rate is really low within China. Even though the government uh, uh, supposedly you know, is, should be have, having the ultimate power but seem they don't they don't have the power to push this to uh, am I correct and uh, and will that if there's a failure of uh, uh, e uh, Chinese yuan will that create more opportunities in the future either for Beijing to flip its uh, uh, position like zero COVID all right or uh, create other opportunities for the diaspora. Well, thanks, uh, Jax, for your question and Warwick for your comments. Uh, concerning the central bank digital currency, Ali, you mentioned it already, that China actually is leading in the world in developing this. Uh, do you have more to say so we can understand a bit more? Um, I mean, I don't know much about the adoption question and what, why that's been so limited. Um, I think there are interesting questions around the interoperability of, of different nations' central bank digital currencies. And there's been a number of pilots through the Bank for International Settlements and, and other entities um, around like, so you can create an E1 or whatever it might be, or a dollar do. I think was the name <laughs> we, we were jokingly referring to in Australian stablecoin. Um, or CBDC, um, but the um, you know there the, there are kind of questions there around surveillance and privacy, which comes back to Mark's work, but um, and the extent to which once you allow these these financial infrastructures um, in, with with those automation capabilities that are controlled by the state, you need to put. A, kind of, a lot of limits on them before you could have them, you know, being trusted by another state. So there, are, I mean, it's not just the kind of privacy and surveillance issues for individuals that I'm interested in, but also what it's going to do at this kind of global monetary system level and the implications for privacy policy. I think there's some big questions there. It could enhance privacy because they're simply not going to be able to have these things unless there is there are international agreements around what states can and can't do with these technologies in other states. Um, as soon as you put something into that context of finance systems and money and the economy, maybe privacy also um, gets elevated to something beyond individual concerns, but that's an optimistic view. It's probably gonna go the other way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Does anyone have any thoughts on adoption of the E1? I have a question. I heard of uh, e sin y EUN uh, trials with a few countries, and when people say like China has advanced more in e uh, ODBC back ODBC, uh, in I think it's in the sense that it it trialed with many other countries than than any. <clears throat> Particularly yeah. along the Silk Silk Road, uh, right? Yeah. Silk, <clears throat> road, Belt and Road Initiative. 
probably in terms of influence, it has reached, uh, whereas U.S., Canada, or these companies, uh, or these countries haven't haven't uh, gotten that far yet. But for uh, but, instance, the yeah. you know the American government would have let its Winter Olympic Olympic athletes um, use the E1, and so so there's been kind of also a whole lot of kind of resistance to it, and now these international agreements forming. So I I, I suspect it's just that. Um, they're they're figuring out how to work it, and it. I I, I think it's going to happen, and I think it's probably absolutely going to be a threat to stable coins or other systems. And what's happened with FTX is just more ammunition for it. A little bit down the rabbit hole into the national currencies, and I mean this is a whole different animal than. The whole rest of uh, Web three, actually, it's like it, I mean, it's almost a completely different thing, I would say. But something I've never understood about it, and someone here who does, who has some thoughts on this, can talk to me after this. I mean, we know how money works. I mean, money is not just created by the government, right? I mean, money is created in different ways. Money is created by banks through lending um, as well, right? So, how does that work if you have a national uh, e-currency like that. I, I think there are really big questions that I have. There's a number of models out there that, have, that various countries are experimenting with, but the, I mean, the, the, even the UK was advocating that it be kind of outsourced to the private banking system mm. in the same way that other money is. You know, yeah. so I don't think it'll be that different, but it's more that it's issued by the government. But it's it's almost like, you know, a big part of how monetary systems work, as far as I'm concerned, is through a kind of strategic ambiguity, right? Like you don't actually want to know how much money is being issued into the system because it's gonna, it, it's like a dirty little secret, right? So if it is all tracked on a blockchain, then what does it do to economies? I, I think it's a really. I think uh, that question deserves a separate session. Yeah, I <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADMS podcast. Session recordings from this conference are available on our YouTube channel. Visit admscenter.org slash YouTube.